So I'd like to talk about trust in this practice. It's a very important aspect, as we know, in the three pillars of Zen, which we use as the basis for our introductory workshop, our Saturday workshop on Zen practice. We talk about the three essentials for Zen practice, and one of these is faith, faith or trust. The definitions of faith and trust are a little different, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but we can talk about them in a way that's the same. So one of the essentials for Zen practice is faith and doubt and determination. So tonight we'll talk about faith and trust. Um, and just really two aspects of faith. The first is faith in the practice. And the second is faith or trust in the teachers. So first, first faith in the practice or trust in the Buddha way. That's what the three pillars describes. And I'll quote what Yasutani Roshi says, and actually that's also Harada Roshi says in the three pillars of Zen, about faith. He says, faith, the kind of faith that is needed for this practice is faith that is firmly and deeply rooted, immovable, like an immense tree or huge boulder. Our supreme faith, therefore, is in the Buddha's enlightenment experience, the substance of which he proclaimed to be that human nature, all existence, is intrinsically whole, flawless, omnipotent, in a word, perfect. Without unwavering faith in this, the heart of the Buddha's teaching, it is impossible to progress far in one's practice. So this is faith in the practice, Yasutani Roshi says, faith in the practice is faith in the Buddha's enlightenment experience. And that experience is that all existence is intrinsically whole, flawless, perfect. Now that's easy to say, but hard to hold that kind of faith. And often we lose faith in the practice. And I think if we're really honest, all of us have times of great doubt. Maybe Roshi's the only one. I find for myself, and this is going to be a very um, personal talk in a way, I find for myself that often when I leave the center and go on vacation or go away for a few days uh, to give a medical lecture or do something unrelated to Zen, that that will trigger uh, kind of questioning in myself and the arousal of lack of faith, doubt in myself. And typically for me, it takes the form of looking around and seeing people who don't practice and saying, well, their, their lives look very nice. It looks like they're leading lives that are in line with the precepts, and they don't have to sit. They don't have to get up every morning at 3, 3.30 and come to sit or 4.30 and come to sit and sit again at night and do session. Well, why am I practicing? What's going on? Do I really have to practice? See, and that kind of doubt often comes up, and I think particularly when we leave the center for a while and then come back. So what do we do when that kind of doubt comes up, that kind of lack of faith comes up? Aiken Roshi, in his book, describes very well what this lack of faith is like, what this lack of trust is like. And he also describes what to do about it. 
And I'd just like to read it whole because I think it's so um, clearly stated. Aiken Roshi's book is called Taking the Path of Zen, and it's a very good introductory book for Zen practice. And he says that William James calls this particular intense doubt about the practice the sick soul. And St. John of the Cross, San Juan de la Cruz, calls it the dark night of the soul. And David, in the Bible, the psalmist, calls it the valley of the shadow of death in the 23rd Psalm. And Aiken Roshi says it's the experience of the spiritual desert where there is no moisture, no sustenance. It is a supreme attack of the blahs. Nothing seems of any value or purpose. Everything that was meaningful before now seems absurd, pointless. The student feels pessimistic and discouraged. Then he discusses some of the causes of this kind of feeling, being overcritical of oneself or of others, being over-idealistic, being perfectionistic, and setting up standards that realistically nobody can meet. And of course... We can't meet them ourselves, and nobody else can meet them, and so seeing that, we get discouraged. Then what to do about it? He says, it requires a lot of trust and courage to press on. So there's that word trust again. It requires a lot of trust and courage to press on. The Christian and Jew put faith in God in this lonely place. But Zen students feel even more alone and must plod along just with trust in the Zazen process. Simply continue in the way you have up to now. As best you can, invest yourself in the practice. Forget yourself and become one with the practice. So it's interesting, he describes this lack of trust, this kind of illness that comes over us when we lose faith in ourselves and in the practice, or in other people in the practice. And then what he prescribes as the cure is to have faith and have trust. So it's... It's what we often say in Zen, that the disease has its own medicine within itself. And that's true in this case. Hard to do, but when we lose faith, we have to summon up a little bit of faith and keep on going. Dogen Zenji mentions it as, a, uh, I think, an old Chinese proverb, seven times down and eight times up. He says, that's the essence of faith. And that's what keeps us going even day after day in our daily life. Seven times we fall down and eight times we get up. So that's what Aiken Roshi is saying. When we lose faith, when we lose trust, that's seven times down. And when we pick up again, we have that faith to pick up and keep on going. That's eight times up. Now I'd mentioned the fact that faith and trust are a little bit different. So let me go to my favorite book, The Dictionary, and give you some of the definitions of trust. One definition of trust is assured reliance on the truth of someone or something. So, applying that to our practice, if we have trust in our practice, we rely on the truth of someone or something. We rely on the truth of what the Buddha said and the path he laid out for us to follow, to see the same thing that he did. So that's reliance on the practice. That's taking refuge. We say, Namukie Butsu, Namukie Ho, Namukie So. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. 
That's having that reliance, leaning on this practice when we need it. So assured reliance on the truth of someone or something. Second definition is dependence on something in the future or contingent. And then they say that's equivalent to hope or very close to hope. And that's part of our trust, too. We're depending on something happening in the future. And it's contingent upon something. We're depending that in the future we can see what the Buddha saw and see it for ourselves, that we can have that same experience. We're depending on something in the future and something that's contingent, and that is contingent on our practice. That in order to see this for ourselves, the truth that the Buddha saw, we have to practice. Then a third definition of trust in the dictionary is to rely on the truthfulness or accuracy of something. So again, that's like taking refuge, to rely on the truthfulness or accuracy of what the Buddha said and upon this practice, on the Buddha way. To rely on, to lean on, to take refuge in. So those are definitions of trust. Now faith, definition of faith is interesting. In the dictionary it says to trust, so in a way it makes the equivalence between faith and trust, to trust a person or doctrines of a religion, or, now here's the interesting difference, that faith can be to trust in something for which there is no proof. To trust in something for which there is no proof. See, that's interesting because that's actually not the way we use the word faith in Buddhism. In the very early stages of practice, we use faith in that sense, of relying or depending or trusting in something for which there is no proof, but later on not. And let me give you an example. This is a quotation from the book What the Buddha Taught by Wahola Rahula, Wapola Rahula. And he's talking about faith. And he makes the point that in Buddhist texts, in ancient Buddhist texts, the word which we translate now as faith is actually not faith in the sense of believing in something for which there is no proof. He says, almost all religions are built on faith, rather blind faith it would seem, but in Buddhism emphasis is placed on seeing, knowing, understanding, and not on faith or belief. In Buddhist texts there is a word, sadha, the Sanskrit is shraddha, which is usually translated as faith or belief. But sadha is not faith as such, but rather confidence, born out of conviction. So the word in the, Buddha, in the old Buddhist text that we translate as faith or belief, actually its more accurate translation is confidence, born out of conviction. The question of belief arises when there is no seeing, seeing in every sense of the word. The moment you see, the question of belief disappears. And then he talks about the old story of if I have a jewel in my hand and I ask you to believe that it's there, it's a matter of faith or belief. So I, if I ask you to believe that you have Buddha nature, at first it's, an, it's a matter of, of belief or faith. But if I show you the jewel and you take it in your own palm and examine it, then it's no longer a matter of belief, but rather of conviction, born out of confidence, handling that jewel and seeing all aspects of it. And the same in our practice. 
that we're actually asked not to have faith in the traditional sense of faith, but rather the sense of confidence born out of conviction. So at first when we practice, we do have faith in the sense of belief. But as we begin to practice, the benefits of this practice begin to be revealed. And we see for ourselves the truth of what the Buddha said. And then that faith or trust or belief becomes conviction, confidence, born out of seeing the truth for ourselves. And if we start to forget, which is easy to do, being in the midst of this practice, sometimes we, f- we start to forget the benefits of the practice. And if we forget, a good exercise is to stop practicing. And any of you who have tried that, I think, would know what happens. I know for myself what happens after two or three days of not practicing. I really notice the difference. As Genpo Sensei said about the famous violinist, that if he doesn't practice one day, he knows it. If he doesn't practice two days, his wife knows it. If he doesn't practice three days, the whole world knows it. And I think if you stop practicing for three days or longer, you notice the difference. And sometimes it takes that to help us remember what the practice has shown us. So there, there as we practice, faith then becomes conviction, gradually turns into conviction on the basis of what we see for ourselves. Now the other aspect that I wanted to talk about is trust in the teachers. Not just trust in the practice, trust in the Buddha way, which is in a sense a little abstract. It becomes less abstract as we begin to practice. That's as, as it turns into, into knowledge and conviction. But actually when, when Seiko asked me to talk about trust, we had been talking actually about the aspect of trust in the teachers, specifically. And the questions that come up, and these have come up for me many, many times, and for Genpo-sensei, and for Tetsugen-sensei, and I'm sure for Roshi when he was studying with his teachers too. If we don't have this doubt, then this practice is like a cult. We have to have doubt. Doubt is very healthy. It's part of the cycle that Dogen Zenji calls raising the Bodhi mind, that the doubt arises, we work with it, We turn it over and over and over and work with it to resolve it. It resolves itself. For a while we rest in calm and conviction, knowledge, and then the doubt arises again, and we work with it again. This cycle just keeps going on and on and on through our practice until all all doubts are resolved, through clear understanding. So the doubt is important, and everyone has had it. And the kind of doubts that we have in this practice are questions like, do we trust what the teachers say? Do we trust it enough to do what they say, to lay aside our own ideas of what we should be doing and try out what they're telling us to do? Will they mislead us? Will they cause us more suffering than we're going through now? Will they abandon us at a crucial moment? I know that many people are feeling in a sense, abandoned when the teacher leaves, even when the teacher leaves for a few weeks, especially when the teacher leaves for longer than that, as Joko has done. And then when the teacher dies, inevitably we're going to feel abandoned. 
And the whole European Sangha that was working with Deshimaru Roshi has felt that very acutely. And their teacher died. So will we be abandoned by our teacher? And then what? Can we go on? Really the question comes down to, can we really trust flesh and blood teachers there in front of us? Easier in a way to trust the abstraction of the Buddha way or the Buddha's teaching. Somebody who lived and died 2,500 years ago and all the patriarchs that we haven't come in contact with face to face. Can we really trust the flesh and blood teacher right in front of us who's telling us to do something that our mind and body are saying no, no, no to? Can we trust enough to go ahead and do what they're asking? So here we're getting to new definitions of trust. And here are definitions coming right from the dictionary again. Definitions of trust. One definition is to commit or place in one's care or keeping. So in reference to the teacher, do we trust enough to commit ourselves and place ourselves in the care taking, the keeping of our teacher? Another definition is assured reliance on the strength or truth of someone. See, so easier to say, I take refuge in the Buddha, I rely on the Buddha way, than to say, I rely on that person over there, that imperfect person, that flesh and blood teacher, and I will do what they tell me to do. A third definition, this is a very interesting one, I think. Third definition of trust is to to permit to stay or go or do something without fear or misgivings. So this fits in in a very interesting way with when our teachers leave for a little while or when they leave for a long while or when they leave forever. Trust means to permit to stay or to go or to do something without fear or misgivings. So can we really trust our teachers to do whatever they have to do, to stay or to go or to do something? And can we really do that without fear or misgivings? Very hard to do. But we have to do it to engage in this practice. If we don't trust, the first thing that happens is we don't have a teacher. It's very simple. If we don't trust, we don't have a teacher. There's no student-teacher relationship. We have somebody to go talk to in interviews. We can talk to them and they can talk back to us, but we do not have a teacher. See, it's very interesting in psychology. If you talk to most psychologists, they will say, do not ever give advice to patients or clients because they don't take it. Never taken. So that's why most therapy is based on listening. Just listening. Because therapists know that if they give advice to patients, never, almost never taken. In fact, usually the opposite. <laughs> And there are some therapies based on the opposite, based on telling the client to do the opposite of what you want them to do, because the client is so invested in maintaining control, they will do purposely the opposite of what the, cl- the therapist tells them to do. And that's called paradoxical intention sometimes. Therapists use that on purpose. So rarely do people take the advice of someone else and try to change. Very rarely. 
And maybe spiritual practice is the one time that people really try to stretch and take the advice to commit themselves or place themselves in the care of someone else. One of the definitions of trust, to commit or place in one's care or keeping, to really commit themselves to a teacher and to follow the teacher's advice. But it's very, very rare. And if we don't make that kind of commitment, we honestly do not have a teacher. See, the commitment is a two-way street, and if we don't commit, the teacher can do very little. If we don't come with that kind of openness of, yes, whatever you tell me to do, even though I really don't want to do it, I will try it. I will try it out. See, if we try it out, that's the only way we can turn faith into conviction. We have to try it out. We have to try out what the Buddha said to do and what our teachers say to do. To turn it from abstract faith into conviction based on experience, we have to try it out. Another interesting definition of truth is a, co- a trust is a combination of firms or corporations by legal agreement. You know that, defini- that, that definition of trust, that, that two corporations will decide to form a trust, a legal agreement. See, if you apply that to our practice, that's the mutual relationship with a teacher and a student. That these two people practicing together, a teacher and a student, decide to form a formal agreement, a trust, to trust each other. In the legal sense, it means that two firms or corporations trust each other to undertake this agreement. And it's the same in Zen practice. The teacher and the student undertake this mutual agreement or trust with each other, to commit to each other. Now, a teacher, according to the dictionary again, is a guide, someone who guides by experience. So a teacher who's a person who's been through these experiences and then turns back and guides someone else through. And the the kanji, the Chinese character for teacher, literally means one who goes before. So one who goes before on the path and then turns around and guides us through on the basis of experience. So that's a mutual agreement, to guide and be guided. It's an agreement that has to be mutual or it has no meaning. So there has to be mutual trust, a mutual agreement to guide and be guided. And here there's a very wonderful quote from Dogen Zenji that I'd like to read. This is from Record of Things Heard from the Treasury of the Eye of the True Teaching by Dogen Zenji. And for those who, um, for whom this is the first or second talk, Dogen Zenji was the teacher who brought Soto Zen from China to Japan in the 1200s. A very, very clear, clearly enlightened teacher. And his um, words are so relevant today. 750 years later. One day he instructed, and this is Dogen Zenji instructed, saying, Worldly people often say, Though I have heard the words of such and such a teacher, it does not agree with my thoughts. These words are wrong. I do not know what is in their minds. Is it that the principle of the sages' teachings goes against their ideas so they think it is wrong? This is total foolishness. 
Or is it that the teacher's words do not accord with their own ideas? If so, then why ask a teacher anything to begin with? Or is it that this is said on the basis of habitual emotional views? If so, they are false ideas that have been held from beginningless past. The attitude needed to study the path is that even if they go against one's own ideas, if they are the words of one's teacher or the stated principles of the sage's teachings, one should follow them completely and abandon one's original personal opinions. This mind is the foremost requirement of the study of the way. In the past, there was one among my companions who went to his teacher clinging to his own views. Whatever did not agree with his ideas, he claimed he didn't understand, and whatever conformed to his own views, he held on to. Thus he passed his whole life in vain and never understood the Buddhist teaching. Seeing him, I realized that the study of the path should not be that way. So considering, I obeyed my master's words completely and understood the principle thoroughly. After that, as I read the scriptures, one scripture said, If you want to study the Buddhist teaching, do not keep continuing the mind of past, present, and future. I knew in truth that one must continue to reform step by step without keeping in mind one's various past thoughts or former views. In a book it says, True words offend the ear. What this means is that words which would truly apply to oneself will always offend one's ears. Even though they offend, if one willfully follows and practices them after all, there should be benefit. He says so much in, in here that's so important. If so, then why ask a teacher anything to begin with? If we're not willing to do what the teacher says, to trust what the teacher says, and to try it out, then why ask the teacher to begin with? It's just a waste of time, of your time and the teacher's time. And then the other important thing that he says is one should follow them completely, the words of one's teacher, and abandon one's original personal opinions. This mind is the foremost requirement of the study of the way. And then the, this wonderful quote, which I think of all the time, true words offend the ear. So in studying with my teachers here, if they say something that really gets me in that gut kind of way, I know there are some true words in there, hidden in there somewhere, and that's what I have to work with. Or if I read something like this, and part of it, reading part of it, I say, oh no, do I really have to do that? Could that really be true? I know there's some true words there, true words that have offended my ears, and something that has to be really worked with. Well, why can't we trust? Trusting is very hard. And why can't we do it? Why are we afraid to trust totally? Why are we afraid to commit 
ourselves to the keeping of our teacher, to the guidance of our teacher, and to try out what they say to do. Well, we're afraid of being misled. We're afraid of being fooled. We're afraid of looking foolish. We're afraid of looking bad. We're afraid of being abandoned. See, so we hold back a little part of ourselves. We hold back a little part for safekeeping. We're willing to trust a certain amount and give a certain amount But we hold back a little part just in case something happens. See, in case my teacher moves away, or in case my teacher dies, or in case he misleads me, or in case something happens. I have this part held back here so that if something happens, I can say, see, I knew it all the time. And be right. See, in S they say, we'd rather be right than be happy. And that is so true. We would rather have that little part held back in case we need to prove that we were right than to give it all, to risk it all, to trust it all, and do what the teacher says we have to do. The reason that I can say this is because I've seen... And whenever I've discovered an area where I don't trust and have been able to let go and step forward and trust and risk, a whole new area has opened up. And it has to happen again and again and again because we keep finding areas where we're holding back, where we're not willing to trust. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just the nature of who we are. We're afraid to risk all and really leap forward and do this practice wholeheartedly. We have to keep finding out where are we holding on, where am I not trusting, and then stepping forward. All I can say is the more that we trust, the more we get back. The teacher is really a mirror for us. Whatever we think is happening with the teacher is happening with us. It's very, very clear, working with students, that students are willing to trust in varying degrees. And the willingness of the student to trust is directly proportional to how much they can get back from the practice and from the teacher. And if you find that you can't trust your teacher, if we ever find that happening, two things have to be done. Either clean it up, Clear it up. Get it out of the way so that the practice can go forward. When I first began teaching recently, one of the students came to me, and the student said, before we get going on this, you know, working together, there are some things I have to clear up, some rumors that I heard, some things that I heard that you said about me, and I want to find out if this is true. And we talked about them, and we got them cleared up. They were just rumors. There was no basis in truth. We got it cleared up, and then we could go forward. And I was so grateful to that student for doing that, because if that student had held those misunderstandings, we never would have been able to work together in a free and open and trusting way. Because always that person would have had in the back of their mind that 
that separate place, that holding on place of wondering, did she really say this about me and what did she mean? Can I really trust her? Or is it at some critical moment, is she going to run away or let me fall or make me fall on my face or make me look foolish? Or See? So I appreciated it so much that that person came right at the beginning and said, let's get this cleared up. And we got it cleared up. And now we can work together. So that's one thing to do. If you feel you cannot trust your teacher, you must go and clear it up. And if it can't be cleared up, then that person is not your teacher, and you need to go elsewhere to find a teacher. Okay, if there isn't trust, you don't have a teacher. And you need to go elsewhere and find a teacher. You're wasting your own time and wasting the teacher's time. So by all means, if you really feel you cannot clear up misunderstandings or mistrust with the teacher, please go somewhere else and find someone you can trust and get on with this practice before life ends. It's pointless to waste your time and waste the teacher's time if you can't trust. Life is very short. We can't waste it in this way. It does no good to stay with the teacher and have bad feelings or gossip or put the teacher down. If that's the case, go and find a teacher we can trust. A teacher that meets our expectations. And then work with that teacher. Develop a relationship and work with them. But it's pointless to stay with a teacher you don't trust and to develop worse and worse misunderstandings that put that teacher down. And this leads to a very... I think very important question that comes up over and over and over again at the Zen Center. And I'm sure it comes up in all spiritual centers, in all spiritual practices. And the question that keeps coming up is, how can teachers say they're enlightened if they have all kinds of personal problems? How can they call themselves enlightened? if they have all kinds of personal troubles and problems? Well, there are two answers that I can see to that question. The first answer is that enlightenment doesn't look like I thought it was going to look like. Okay, there's one answer. Well, I thought enlightenment was going to look one way, and here I am looking at an enlightened person, and it doesn't look like I thought it was going to look like. Okay, that one we can put aside. Work with that one if you want to. Second answer is that the teachers are not completely enlightened. A very simple answer. The teachers are not completely enlightened. Recently, a member had this question, a form of this question, in a very deep, deep way, and was being prevented from practicing because they had this question of how can an enlightened teacher have problems in their life? So I said, go talk to your teacher and ask them point blank, clear up the misunderstanding so that trust can develop again. So the member went to the teacher, and Roshi was the teacher, talked to the teacher, and Roshi said, I'm immature. We're all immature. We're all babies in this practice. See, if you look at where we have to go, we're all down here at the beginning. 
you know, they talk in Buddhism about five this is and, five, and 12 stages of that and three of this and 52 stages of enlightenment. They were all at the beginning. This practice goes on forever. It has been going on forever and it continues forever and we're just somewhere on the continuum. So when you really go and ask Roshi, as this person did, how can it be that an enlightened person has trouble in their lives? Roshi said, I'm immature. We're all immature. Or actually the word that Roshi used was premature. Premature. And in a way that's a good word too. It's premature for any of us to be teaching. But students ask for teachers and they find teachers and they set them up as teachers and so he's teaching. So some of us are teaching. We're all baby Buddhas. See, what's interesting is that Roshi never said he was completely enlightened. Roshi never even talks about anything about that. Anything about that. Think on it. Think back on it. Has Roshi ever said a word about his own enlightenment? The only thing he ever says is that we're all baby Buddhas. I heard him once talk about it in, in an oblique way. He said, I'm just beginning to learn how to do shikantaza. See, so whenever he mentions it, if he mentions it at all, he says, I'm just a beginner, I'm immature. It's us who talks about how enlightened our teachers are, not the teachers. It's us who makes it up. See, we guess, we surmise how enlightened our teachers are. We put them up on the pedestal. We put them up on the pedestal, and then we get angry when we discover they have feet of clay, that they're ordinary people, that they have faults. See, we create the whole problem. It's always the case. We create the whole problem. We put them up on a pedestal and call them completely enlightened. Roshi never says anything about that. And then we get upset because we discover that they have faults or personal problems. The Yatsutani Roshi said, even at the end of his life, there were many what he calls um, fibers. Like when you, he, it's, a, it's a word in Japanese that means lotus root fibers. When you cut a lotus root, if anybody's ever cooked with lotus root, when you cut it, it's like celery. It has all those fibers, and you can cut, even with a very sharp knife, and there's still all those fibers sticking the two ends together. And Yasutani Roshi said, even at the end of his very long life, with his very clear understanding, there were lots of fibers, say, still not cut. So having very clear understanding, still he knew his life didn't match it, and that he still had far, 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 far to go. We all have far, 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 far to go. Now on the other side, Roshi does have extraordinary clarity. Extraordinary clarity. I, we just cannot begin to judge the degree of his clarity and understanding. Okay, We shouldn't even try to speculate on it. And what I've found is in, in my years of practice, the more I probe, the deeper I find it is. Always it keeps going and going and going and going.
See, the limitations are mine, always, is what I find. And whenever I have a question about what Roshi's doing, I have found every time, over and over again, that it's my lack of understanding when I really go to him and say, Roshi, I do not understand what your thinking is, why you're doing this. And he explains it to me, I see suddenly that his understanding of the situation is so much vaster than mine. So again, this is an example of faith turning into conviction. That at first we have to have a kind of blind faith in our teachers. And then we have to test it out as we test out the Buddhist way. First we start with faith, we test it out, and it develops into conviction. The same with the trust and faith in our teachers. We have to test it out by going to them, asking them questions, trying out what they tell us to do. And through trying that out and succeeding or seeing where their understanding is and expanding our own understanding a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, we develop that conviction, that true trust based on experience, based on confidence. So please, I encourage everyone, if you have questions or doubts, Don't hold on to them and turn them over, but go directly to the teacher and talk about them. These things have to be cleared up so that we can develop true trust in each other and work together on this practice. So in this practice, in the practice of the Buddha way, in this practice with our teachers, we start with faith. That is, we, f- we start with believing in something with no proof that it's true. We start with, then with trust, with committing ourselves to the practice and to the teacher. And then as we practice, we develop that conviction. So we go from faith to trust, to conviction. And our conviction is based on our experience of the truth, our direct experience of the truth. And that is what Buddhism is, is experience of the truth. Thank you very much.